City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM and maybe you're listening on the internet on 3cr.org.au and that was Deltron 3030 with Virus. And the time is 9.04am. That was the city limits of city limits, wasn't it? The uh, Okay, and there's city limits. I'm Kevin Healy and uh, Corey Green's the person you've just been talking to, or talking to you. And it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. That means we've got no specific subject, but we are going to continue our recent, um, another episode in our recent discussions about what makes a healthy and sustainable city. And today we're going to be talking to Professor Carolyn Weitzman, and she's from Melbourne. She's Professor of Urban Planning up at Melbourne, and we'll be talking to her in about 15 minutes or so. And um, and uh, I think she will find it pretty interesting. I was saying to you yesterday, Corey, that in fact I first picked up um, her interest in healthy cities, uh, an article she wrote in The Age two or three years ago, and at that time I thought, gee, we must get her on city limits. So I was saying it shows just how organised we are, but two or three years later we've actually got her on. So there you are. Um, Better and, late than never. Oh, I think so, yeah. Um, there's been all this furor in the last couple of days over uh, Q&A having on a so-called terrorist who's <laughs> unconvicted, of course, terrorist. But yes. uh, th- th- those who totally believe in freedom of speech have been screaming and yelling. We've had Turnbull, who, of course, dobbed in the, S- the SBS reporter over his Anzac comments and got him the sack a great believer in free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't watch Q&A because I think it's too conservative. Mm, I, I, see, I see promos for it and I see them turning politicians or trying to make politicians appear human, that sort of thing, and you realise mm. it's not worth watching. Uh, yet they're coming out from the other direction. Um, they, if you believe in freedom of speech, and it's a show where I didn't see it, but clearly the bloke had a, had a chance to say what he wanted to say, and then there were other people in the studio who were going to counter that. So it was a discussion, it was a debate, What's wrong with that? Where is that breaking our, uh, showing that you know they're un-Australian or something by having it? Well, um, I mean, if he wasn't, you know, if, you if he wasn't found, you want a cup of tea? No, no, thank no, you. no you're off. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and get us. I'm off got, my tea. We've got these other mics today because of the noise next door in the building site. So I'm hoping people can hear this, but maybe not. We'll try. There we are. People hear that. Yeah, I can hear that. Oh, good. Okay, good. I mean, good. if he wasn't found guilty in a court of law, then you know he's. He's, what's the problem? He's not a terrorist, you know? Oh, he is. He is. He's clearly a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, I know that he's Muslim, and, and in the government's eyes, that automatically makes him a terrorist. And he's got an, got an Arabic name, Islamic name. Mm. It's enough. Yeah. I don't know. Hang on, I've got to be able to drink this tea through this microphone. It's a bit difficult. <laughs> ah, there we are. That, now, put the mic back down there. Um... Yeah, it, but it, it also, just that I, I raised that also because I already had an item I was going to raise um, because, as you know, Ila Papa, the old Pope last week, came out with his statement on climate change, mm. which was, wasn't too bad. There were a few things in it we wouldn't agree with, but mm. nonetheless, it was, in terms of the deniers, it was a big kick in the guts. Mm. Um, and um, Larissa Waters, the Green Senator, um, in question time, asked Abbott... Um, 
if he would listen to the Pope's recent call for action on climate change. Hmm. Um, and the question was ruled out of order. Now, this is because, you know, Bishop rules everyone out of order, and if you open your mouth, you get thrown out under rule, whatever. You think that a bishop <coughs> would want to listen to the Pope? You would, and an abbot as well. But anyway, um, but that's, that's beside the point. The question was ruled out, but Senator Brandis, the Attorney General, <coughs> took the opportunity to describe the reflection on Mr Abbott's religious beliefs as disgusting. He lashed out at her for raising his religious beliefs and that thing, so it's disgusting to raise his religious beliefs but not disgusting when he imposes his views on abortion or um, same-sex marriage or whatever on his party. Or on, uh, you know, tries to quiet Muslims because of their religious beliefs. Well, yes, that's uh, not a bad thought, actually, Corey, is it? <laughs> I mean, and the other thing about terrorism, you know, is terrorists... Like, I have no idea what this guy's accused of, but terrorism is in the eye of the, of the beholder. I mean, mm. you know, I would consider... Israelis' actions towards the Palestinian terrorism, but, you know, Rupert Murdoch and Tony Abbott might think of them as, you know, perfectly legitimate... Supporters of liberty, freedom and democracy. Exactly. uh, And whereas the Palestinians are described by everybody, well, at least by people like Abbott and company and by the the Israelis, of course, as the terrorists, Mm. uh, when they're the ones whose houses get destroyed, when their land's occupied and they haven't actually got a country anyway. So, yeah, it's it's all in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It it really is. You know, and famous terrorist Nelson Mandela, for example. That's right, that's right. And... uh, Yes, he was I mean, a terrorist. You know, it would be great if they had <laughs> Nelson Mandela on Q&A. I mean, obviously he's dead now. Yeah, it'd be tough. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great comebacks in history. <laughs> the, this, speaking of um, things that are no longer alive or people who are no longer alive or, or animals that are no longer alive, um, in the, these big bloody factory fishing trawlers that have now been allowed to go out and you know, mm. trawl our oceans. One called the Geelong Star, which sounds a bit like Gary Ablett or something. But anyway, um, factory fishing trawlers are banned from. They've banned them from working in a stretch off the NSW Victoria coast around the around the border there somewhere, because they reported that they'd caught another dolphin. And now it's uh, it uh, there's something like uh, six, I think, or is it more? Nine dolphins have have died since uh, mid-April when they started this fishing there. Mm caught up in the net so they've actually stopped them fishing probably a temporary thing and they'll get back to it mm. they're required to report the deaths of any protected species within 24 hours now I'm sure they're not reporting them all mm. um, I mean, it's, once again it's regulation relying on them reporting to you <laughs> uh, so they've actually re- they've actually reported that nine have died since April but I'll bet lots of other uh, protected species including dolphins etc have gone down the gurgler well, I mean, they, those factory um, boats just take in tons of fishes at a time. You wouldn't, mm. you know, unless you were um, a scientist and, you know, really keen on knowing, you wouldn't know what you had in your net. No, that's right. No, that's, well, that's true. That's and, uh, true. you know, if you weren't keen on knowing and you weren't a scientist, you know, what, what are the chances you're going to notice that this is the the rare dotted nose fish or whatever? Oh, I'm sure they're all trained before they go out and they've got them given a book saying this is protected, do not catch it. Mm. So you put the net down and you have to work out that the trawling net thing is not going to catch that particular fish apparently. Mm. And it's so wasteful, you know. Like, like they don't even use all the fish that they catch. No, no. And, and given that, I mean, it's... For people who enjoy seafood, I mean, we used to be able to occasionally, it was a luxury, but occasionally buy the odd crayfish or something. Now mm. now you simply can't afford one because mm. they're all exported. The, the export market has sent the price soaring. And now there's some other 
fish that people actually like here. It might even be prawns or something. I can't think what it is. But there's something else they're talking about now that's going to suddenly go into that export market and send the prices soaring. So we won't be able to afford them here at all. So, you know, they're fishing off our waters, but many of the fish they're catching we can't afford because they're really for export into that that upper class Asian market. I'm sure most of the Asian people can't afford it either, but uh, mm. there are those who can. So there you are. Yeah, another one well, I just thought I'd raise, uh, because there is this rally on Friday, and we've got a leaflet about it here in front of us, uh, Stop the Forced Closure of Aboriginal Communities, so another one of those actions um, at 3pm. So we do urge people to get there this Friday, 3pm at Flinders Street Station we meet um, to take up that, that uh, cause again against the forced closure of Aboriginal communities, and of course it always gets... Which attacked. is just a really long way of saying the continued invasion. The continued invasion, and it's. Um, I mean, there are there are you know men going in with guns taking land. It's you know, I wouldn't call it a forced closure. It, it really um, is just a pretty classic take, taking of land. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it's on this Friday. Of course, it'll be attacked again for stopping the city and stopping people doing what they want to do, etc., etc. Uh, whereas, as we keep saying, when other when capitalists want to stop roads or have ma- their sort of marches or the Maya Christmas parade, for instance, uh, it's lauded and all over the front page is something we should all appreciate and love. Uh, <clears throat> but um, so. And the other thing that I find interesting, because they say, well, it's stopping people going out their business, but really, at the time this is held on a Friday, most people, if they are being stopped, are actually on their way home from work, and they won't go back to work, most of them, because it's in the city, till Monday morning. So you'd think the bosses wouldn't give us stuff <laughs> um, until Monday morning, again if they don't turn up, but then, mm-hmm. then they give us stuff again. Mm-hmm. But, but I raise that also because there was a full-page ad in the paper yesterday um, Crown Resorts Foundation, Packer Family Foundation, mm. and you'll be pleased to know they're involved with the Indigenous Education Program partner. They're a partner in the Indigenous Education Program, and this uh, this is going to do wonderful things for kids. And Gretel Packer, chair of the Crown Resorts Foundation Advisory Board, said we're delighted to partner with these outstanding Indigenous education providers, etc., etc. And you think... Uh, education or assimilation? Well, isn't it wonderful? What are they being educated in exactly? Oh, presumably being white. Um, and um, so, in yes, uh, so it's just wonderful to know that uh, this is being supported. There's a few other wonderful companies here, but the ad is an obvious an ad for Crown. They've put in the ad. They've obviously paid for it, and they're promoting themselves and the Packer family, mm. who is, while well, Jamie's over there with his latest, um, his latest fling... Um, wherever he is on his yacht. Uh, but uh, to think that, you know, they're going to somehow solve the, the, the problems facing Aboriginal communities, I mean, they're, they're part of it, for God's sake. Mm. And yet here they are announcing themselves as wonderful, wonderful donors and supporters of the Aboriginal Indigenous community. It's, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's like that um, Generation One business, you know, getting Aboriginal people into white jobs away from their communities. You know, who who is that serving? Is that serving the bosses or is that serving the Aboriginal people? Uh, how long have I got to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> is there a time, is there a clock ticking away here? <laughs> 45 minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And I mean, the- just the whole idea of Generation <laughs> 1, I mean, the name of it gives me the creeps because it, it, it makes me feel like they're erasing the, the thousands of generations beforehand. You know, like like these, uh, you know, the history that goes back to the dream time. They're just getting rid of it and they're, they're starting again with this. This, this is going to be the first generation. Well, they've got to they've learn to be white, for goodness sake. 
Ah. Yes, yes. And it's, uh, it's, it's always ironies when they talk about protecting our borders and we decide who comes here and all those arguments around refugees, etc. when mm. you know, we were the first boat people, for God's sake. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I've got nothing against um, Aboriginal people having a white education. It's a good way to fight your oppressor. But I, I just feel like, you know, so often education isn't in the interest of the person being educated. No. No, it's not certainly not. I mean, it's, it's happened over the years. The, you know, the the stolen generation were taken into white homes and sent to white schools, etc., etc. Whatever schooling they got, they didn't get much schooling at all, I don't think, but the, whatever mm. schooling they got was white. I mean, there are great Indigenous schools, such as, you know, what Chris, Dara, uh, Chris Sara was doing, you know, Strong, Black and Deadly, and having elders come in and, and learning the local, you know, their language. Um, you know, that's that's great, but most schools just aren't like that. No, no, mm. unfortunately. And, of course, the one, one in Glenroy we mentioned last week, they now want to sell the land or private developer, but if it was an Aboriginal school, they actually closed down and uh, close to public transport, etc. Just on one of the stories we covered recently, the story about the um, same-day or the payday lenders and the way they rip people off, mm. you probably noticed that cash converters last week uh, settled a case for $23 million. Uh, They've agreed to pay $23 million to settle two class actions bought by 37,500 customers who argued they were overcharged, etc. Um, and uh, they, as they got to the court door, they settled, of course, so they wouldn't actually get a, get a conviction. Mm, so it's and a, public scrutiny of their practices. Right. So it's a non-liability uh, without admission type uh, settlement, but they've agreed to um, pay $23 million to settle a case. So... Um, it's good to see. Good to see. Let's hope they more of them get taken to the the clean. Oh no, get cleaners because <laughs> they don't. They've still got plenty of money left over. Mm. Um, the other story we also mentioned in passing last week was the fact that um, at Ranger the um, the extension probably isn't going to go ahead because Rio Tinto pulled the plug and it's you know at the moment it's scheduled to close anyway in nineteen in twenty twenty one, isn't it? Mm. Um, but. Um, it, it's caused ructions on the on the board of Energy Resources of Australia, which is a which is a um, a Rio subsidiary, and two people have resigned, or three people in fact this week have resigned from the board, and um, that harms it. There's only three left because they disagreed with the Rio decision. They wanted to go ahead. They wanted one to to go underground and do the extra mining, but also to have the the um, life of the mine extended beyond the current limit. So there's a bit of a furor going on there at that level, but um, the thought is because Rio's determined and it's big and it, uh, it probably it can see there's not much profit, I think that's what it can see, um, it probably won't go ahead, but it has caused ructions on that board, which is which is terrible, isn't it? Mm, mm. I've got to say, um, Kevin, Rio Tinto has to be about the, the most perfect name for a mining company that I've ever heard, meaning Tainted River. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, they, they certainly work as Consink Rio Tinto, which is the company changed its name and they're running somewhere, but it was the company that first that developed the Bougainville mine, of course, and uh, within within weeks of the mine opening... They the, had the, a new Rio Tinto. The beautiful Java River, uh, which ro- flowed down from the top of uh, Bougainville, um, was now this viscous sludge, you know, going out to sea and destroying the subsistence lifestyle of, of people using the river and using the sea for subsistence living, etc., um, so it's, it's a good name. It's interesting with this thing with the um, board of directors. Like maybe 
Okay, so it doesn't actually seem like it would be that um, profitable to um, continue that mine, but uh, perhaps the thinking behind it is is they they don't want to be stopped by political action doing anything, if you get what I mean. Because, you mm. know, one of the reasons that the range of mine is is trouble is because of political action, right? Yeah. People like us. And so maybe it's like, even if they're not going to make money on it, they just like, they just have to go through with it just to prove that they can sort of thing. Mayhaps, and I think Rio would, I mean, the, the other factor at the moment, of course, is that since Fukushima, the, he, um, the price of uranium has slumped so dramatically that there's no profit in it at the moment. So Yeah, exactly. Rio, Rio, I mean, Rio might, in the back of their minds, think, well, if, it, if the price goes up, we can always move in and restart the bloody thing. I mean, yeah. they, you, their thinking wouldn't be nothing, it wouldn't be altruistic, it wouldn't have nothing to do with caring about the Aboriginal communities in the area or the fact that the local Indigenous communities have totally opposed the mine since the outset. Thank you, Bob Hawke, by the way, for that one. Very nice of him to uh, do what he did. Um, now, a couple of days, that we'll go to, go to our guest in a moment, but a, a, an interesting story in the last week or so, because um, on one day, a story report came out, a plan by Washington to station tanks and heavy weapons in NATO states on Russia's border would be the most aggressive US act since the Cold War and Moscow would retaliate by beefing up its own forces, a Russian defence official said on Monday. The United States is offering to store military equipment on allies' territory in Eastern Europe, a proposal aimed at reassuring governments worried that after the conflict in Ukraine they could be the Kremlin's next target, and it goes on in that range. Hmm. So they're, they're putting all these weapons aimed at Russia on the border... And then the next day, uh, a story comes out and John Kerry, the US Secretary of State, expressed concern over Russia's missile announcement because Russia said hmm. it's going to do something about its missiles. And he said no one wanted to see a backsliding to a kind of Cold War status. He said nobody should hear the kind of announcement from a leader of a powerful country and not be concerned about what the implications are. So hmm. he's saying that, that the Russians have no right, apparently, to uh, say anything about the U.S. putting all these weapons on its border. And I thought, well, maybe Russia and China and others can go to Cuba, Canada, on, off the coast on the Atlantic and Pacific sides and put, put some, some weapons and some uh, troops there and some boats and things and aim them at the U.S. because obviously it's a peaceful thing. It's nothing to do with Yeah, it's being definitely aggressive. peaceful. Oh, what well, do you think about all the, you know, the bases, um, say, for example, um, in northern Australia that are, Pointing at Southeast Asia. Yes, and the fact that, uh, in fact, if there is any sort of uh, any sort of uh, real war going on, then a couple of our bases, particularly Pine Gap, play a key role mm. in um, in the communications and, and and of where the weapons go and where they. So, to be honest, it doesn't make me feel that safe. No, it puts you right in the line. <laughs> I mean, we, but, I mean, Pine Gap's been one for years, for decades now that people have opposed, but certainly we just keep going on with it, increasing it, and. Uh, it's quite dreadful, um, and and so sadly, um, even when Labor Party was a bit better, better than it is now, is you know a bit better, uh, even then they still wouldn't do anything about Pine Gap or take them on. Although there was thought, one of the thoughts is that the reason why um, the US uh, moved in and and the Whitlam government was thrown out was because he was talking about doing something about Pine Gap. So mm. um, the a one CIA coup. Yeah, the one time that they did make some suggestion they might just uh, limit the, the role of Pine Gap or even, dare we say, close it down, for God's sake. Mm. Um, and then um, 
they disappeared <laughs> out the door. <laughs> that was democracy that. up to a point. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. As that's long me. as you don't uh, talk about closing down U.S. bases or taxing mining companies, you can have all the democracy you all want. All the democracy in the world. And uh, look, we well, there's plenty of stuff happening on the end, particularly the way the Herald Sun's been running the industrial stories this week has just been extraordinary. Did you know, Kevin? Unions, but we won't go into that now, but yeah, go on. Did you know that I'm I'm actually psychic and I feel like I know what you're going to say? Oh, do you? Yeah. Right. Do, do you want me to try out my abilities? Yeah. Mm, the Herald Sun is saying that unions are no good. Jesus, you got it right. Wow. Oh, no, no. You are psychic. I didn't I know am it. Yes, psychic. yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, terrific. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, they are too. And, uh, and well, we, we, I think people are catching up with all that, but it's just extraordinary. And uh, let's, we'll maybe next week more on that, but we'll go to our first guest. Let's take a break, come back, and we're going to talk to um, Professor Carolyn Weitzman. You're listening to City Limits on. 3CR, maybe you're listening online, 3cr.org.au, and the time is 9.28, and we just had Red House by Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix, I promised that I would play some old people's music. <laughs> well, I was just sitting here thinking, I hope Carolyn Weitzman's of the Jimi Hendrix generation, which you just had about I'm 20. actually slightly <laughs> later than the Jimi Hendrix generation, but I was enjoying it, so thank you for that. Oh, good. Uh, and Carolyn Weitzman is uh, Professor of Urban Planning at Melbourne, and uh, we've got her on. I, I was saying earlier, Carolyn, Carolyn, that I... I read something he wrote in The Age about three years ago now about healthy cities, and I thought at that time we must get Carolyn on, but it's only taken us three years, so it shows how well organised this program is. Um, but Carolyn, um, let's kick off. Uh, we've got to talk about healthy and sustainable cities, but just to look at the corollary of that or the other side of that, what, what, is, um, what constitutes an unhealthy city in your opinion? That's a really interesting uh, question, Kevin. I think that... Uh, it comes down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So at the most basic level, um, human beings need uh, water and sanitation and shelter and healthy food. So um, in many ways, wealthy countries, like a third of the world doesn't have access to a public toilet um, uh, or, or to, a, uh, I should say, a private toilet. Um uh, a very large proportion of the world doesn't have access to safe drinking water. So those kinds of city issues affect many cities. They don't generally affect Australian cities. They do affect some indigenous um, settlements. Um, and then there's the question of shelter. Can you find a safe place to sleep? And in that regard, there are um, a critical mass of homeless people. And when we talk about homelessness, we're not just talking about people who are sleeping rough. We're talking about people who um, are couch surfing or whose accommodation is desperately overcrowded or whose accommodation is insecure. And there we're talking about 100,000 Australians, which is really pretty unacceptable in a wealthy country like Australia. Um, so I'd say an unhealthy city is a city where people don't have the basic conditions for a decent life um, there. And also um, uh, most uh, discussions of healthy cities um, also talk about the growth of chronic diseases that are caused by sedentary behaviors. And so an unhealthy city would be a city that where you have to drive 
to get a liter of milk or um, uh, have your children go to school or um, uh, get to work. Um, And again, in that regard, um, Australian cities could be doing a lot better. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, Indigenous communities because uh, um, a lot of the reason that Indigenous communities um, don't have, you know, basic services isn't just neglect. It's actual, like, you know, political decisions as a way to try and move people off of land. Is that mm. is that similar in, um, other, you know, in other cases of the 3 billion people you mentioned who don't have their basic needs met? Are they politically inconvenient? That's an interesting question. Certainly some of it has had to do with changing attitudes towards slum dwellings where, um, or I should say informal dwellings, where a lot of informal dwellings were condemned uh, um, as because people didn't have legal title and so services weren't being provided to those dwellings. Um, and that's true of a lot of the people who call themselves slum dwellers. There's an active group called Slum Dwellers International. Um, so I would say that at this point, with this level of technology and this level of wealth that the world has, that um, those kinds of unhealthy communities are the result of political decisions um, uh, as well as political inaction. Sure. Yeah, and on the on health in cities, um, just recently the those who profit from infrastructure had a national infrastructure summit where Tony Shepherd, the ex president of the Business Council of Australia, and he's been on the board of a number of the the road projects. Um, he was talking about he was talking about the how you how you defeat anti groups. Um, I think they should be called the pro groups, but anyway, that's another question. Um, he says, for example, there is not a scintilla of evidence that ventilation outlets on road tunnels in Australia have increased the concentration of pollutants in their vicinity over what they would have been if the tunnel were not constructed. Hmm. Um, and similarly, when there was a hearing into uh, the the outlets at the at uh, City Link with the tunnels there in Richmond, hmm. uh, the authorities actually said at that time that no that only there'd only be a minimal number of extra deaths caused by road by air pollution than are caught happening now in that vicinity. Now, that seems to me to be a most immoral position. Well, whose extra well, deaths? Is... is it going to be the road planners' <laughs> children's extra deaths? Is it going to be um, the politicians' children's there, extra deaths? There is that, and I see we're about to have a really broad-ranging discussion. Um, what I can say is that uh, I've been uh, involved a little bit, and I'm doing a little bit of research on decision-making about the Brunswick Terminal station. Mm. Um, And what strikes me about a lot of infrastructure decisions, I mean, we always focus on road and rail and absolutely billions of dollars, terribly important. But we're not having the kinds of conversations that we need to have about other aspects of infrastructure. In this case, the Brunswick Terminal Station is an electricity substation. And there was nothing between a regulatory test, which took a very strict cost-benefit economic cost-benefit approach and said, yeah, let's keep up with the electricity distribution network as um, uh, it has been for many years, and this is the cheapest option in terms of the transformer station, nothing about, you know, what kind of environmental or health uh, or heritage impacts it would have on um, a terminal station and uh, not only in a residential neighborhood, but adjacent to Mary Creek, which is pretty important piece of parkland. Um, And then it went straight to the planning approvals process where 
really in the first instance only the immediate neighbors were um, uh, informed uh, of uh, the um, decision that was about to be made at the local council. And um, it was mostly about aspects of the design of the station. So there's very little um, discussion, engagement, (laughs) innovative thinking that's happening. A very narrow set of decision makers, I think, would be the best way to describe it, around some pretty major infrastructure decisions that affect our lives in Australia. And we think of Australia, I mean, Australia is a lot more of a democratic country than uh, a lot of other countries that I've worked in, for instance. Um, but I recently did a project in Papua New Guinea about um, uh, road safety that involved um, uh, um, uh, disability um, uh, um, grassroots organizations for um, uh, people with disability. And it was pretty bad. I mean, there was no consideration of... Um, uh, the value of a human life, or if there was a consideration of the value of the human life, it was pretty upfront that children or people with disabilities, their lives were quite literally worth less because they had less economic productivity value. Um, but really, it's not that different in Australia. Yes. So, in fact, there's something else I wanted to get onto on that one. But back to the back, um, which I'll get to eventually. But now that you've raised the issue of the station in North Fitzroy, the electricity station, we did interview uh, one of the people, one of the local residents, a couple of weeks ago about that issue. But you, you, what, what alternative? It's gone up to planning panels, and that's actually kind of positive because the planning panel is looking not only at that specific decision, but the whole question about community engagement in relation to major infrastructure and I think that's a really important discussion that needs to happen in Australia. Indeed one of the few successes that communities have had was years ago in a similar issue the the uh, Brunswick to Kew power line issue I'm sure you recall uh, where they the government at the time set up a genuinely independent panel Um, and it came down and and recommended against the whole proposal. But it's one of the few ones. um, And it also comes from a different era, Kevin, because in those days um, utility companies were public and now they're private entities, and that really makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, well, you did refer to what should happen here. What, What do you think should happen with the Fitzroy issue? Well, first of all, it's in Brunswick, not Fitzroy, and that's part of the oh, problem. Yeah, it actually yeah. sits at the boundary of three local governments. I think um, the, in the first instance, it wasn't a decision for one local government to make uh, when the terminal station is, um, as you say, 50 metres away from North Fitzroy and Yarra and about 150 um, metres away from um, uh Darabin, Northcote. Um, so it really is a decision that didn't belong with the local council. It would have belonged with the metropolitan government if we had metropolitan government in um, uh, Melbourne, which unfortunately we don't have. Um, it should have gone to the state government and it should have gone to an independent assessment process. What do you think would be an ideal outcome, though, of, um, of the process for the Brunswick? Honestly, I'm... I mean, I I care about the outcome, but I also care about the process. Hmm. And I think that we need to think about not just democratic processes, but what I call deliberative processes. So the work I'm currently focused on right now is around affordable housing, the issue that I brought up earlier. Hmm. And I think if you scratched anyone, um, they'd say, 
housing affordability, affordable housing is a huge problem in Melbourne with, in particular, many low and moderate income households locked out of um, any kind of affordable, decent, well-located housing. But to me, the, I mean, yes, it would be great to have a mass movement that demanded uh, changes in the way that the divestment from coal movement is happening right now. But I also think it would be useful, or it has been useful over the last couple of years, to bring together the different parties, the state government, local government, philanthropic investors, potential private investors like banks and super funds, private developers who provide 95% of um, the housing in Australia, um, and and together go, hey, you're saying it's a problem. Um, are there any solutions you can live with uh, collectively? Um, what uh, kinds of knowledge can you share with other people in order to come up with a better decision? And that sort of process has been used in a number of environmental movements. It hasn't been used that much about affordable housing, but I actually do believe in deliberative planning. So to me, um, and I know this seems like a bit of a cop-out, yes, there's absolute social justice, environmental sustainability imperatives. The question is, how do we get there? And I'm a great believer in bringing people together across difference, including political difference, and being honest and upfront about those conflicts and trying to come up with um, innovative ways to deal with long-standing issues in um, in new ways because the world's rapidly changing and we need to figure out ways to solve problems because we're getting worse and worse at solving all kinds of problems, including urban problems, and it's just no way to go forward. Indeed, um, just recently, or the last state budget, there was actually a uh, a, a, a tax on um, on overseas investors in development, um, which caused an absolute furor. And suddenly, we discovered that people like um, Jennings, Murbach, and Stockland are all are all owned overseas anyway, and they started screaming and yelling. So there were there were approaches to the state treasurer Tim Pallas, and there's a number of stories. But eventually, at the end of the stories, the headline is. Um, is um, is government caves in to uh, <laughs> to the whole thing, and but in the course of the debate, these companies like Stockland, Murbach, Jennings were saying, if this if we have to pay this tax, we won't be able to continue to provide affordable housing. But I would have thought they're not providing a lot of that now, are they? No, they're not providing affordable housing uh, now, and that um, will move elsewhere argument at some point you just have to step in with a regulatory approach so we, uh, i spent the first half of this year traveling around to north america not you know a socialist paradise by any means <laughs> um but in cities like portland and vancouver what you find when you talk to developers and i spend a lot of time talking to developers is um th- to give an example the urban development institute in vancouver they don't talk or argue or care anymore about um, an urban growth boundary. There's been an urban containment boundary in Vancouver now for 40 years. Um, there's been one for 40 years in Portland. But, you know, it's two generations of developers since then. They don't care anymore. They don't care much about inclusionary zoning or the kinds of value capture mechanisms that are used in either places to provide affordable housing. Again, happened a long time ago. 
it's another generation. They've got their own set of arguments. That doesn't mean that they aren't lobbying for certain things from um, the um, local government. And in many ways, I'm sympathetic to some of the things that they're having arguments about. Um, let's say that I can see both sides of that issue. But the important thing is you make the change and developers who, like any other business, want to make a profit, adapt. Um, sometimes they adapt by charging higher prices to consumers, and that might happen uh, in the case of inclusionary um, zoning. It's not necessarily It's hard, it's the hard to imagine housing mechanism. becoming any more expensive. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's, I mean moment, it's already at a ridiculous um, housing, point. Yeah, housing in Australia and in Melbourne is, you know, it's, it's um, uh, getting up there uh, with uh, London and New York, um, uh, certainly less affordable than, than Tokyo, which used to be the gold standard of unaffordability. Um, so I guess um, uh, I don't know what the crisis point would be. Um, what I do know is that um, uh, if you come up with clear standards of where development is allowed, um, developers will respond to those prompts in the way that absolutely maximizes their profit, but in many cases results in better social and environmental outcomes um, than you would have without any regulation. And of course, developers always say one of the one of the reasons for unaffordable housing is that the government isn't making enough land available on the fringes of the city, etc. Uh, at the same well, time, some developers say that. Other developers yes. say, and I again, I sympathise with them, and uh, and I may be somewhat controversial with some of your listeners. Um, uh, not enough land is being made available in inner, inner and middle suburbs. Um, uh, where there is very good infrastructure. So Mm. we need to get beyond, again, this is an aspect of regulation. What happens in Vancouver is um, the local and metropolitan government sit down, they go, um, uh, here's the social infrastructure, here's the transport infrastructure, here's the capacity for um, uh, more people uh, coming in and a range of houses moving in. And then the community planning isn't about whether a particular development will happen or not, which is frankly a stupid waste of time. Um, it's about how is um, uh, this area going to become more affordable for more people because the densities in most of inner Melbourne are far, far below what they used to be. Uh, And if we aren't going to continue to grow outwards, we're going to need to grow in some other Mm. direction. (laughs) Well, of course, growing outwards... I don't know. (laughs) Growing outwards affects the ecology of the land you take anyway. We're destroying a lot of the last remnants of grassland in the north and west, for instance. Um, But also it it puts people in a position where they've got to have some beaten up old car if they can't afford anything else to go anywhere. So it creates all sorts of problems. No, it, 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 it has huge environmental and social and economic cost to continue sprawling as we have been doing, um, we have to find another way to live. Uh, London, where I lived for a number of years, um, has three times the population and a third of the land area, um, and has a great system of parks and a pretty good public transport system. It's not a perfect city by any means, nor is it a particularly affordable city, of course. But it um, did make a decision, and quite a long time ago, that it was going to have a green belt and that that was vital. And um, uh, that 
framed a metropolitan planning conversation. So we need to have that kind of a conversation or that kind of a vision or that kind of set of decisions, and they're hard decisions, and let that frame our discussions about what's going to happen within our communities. Mm. And of course, coming back to that, the idea of having a beaten up old bomb out there, because you've got to have something. Um, in Melbourne, again, I mean, the, the fact that for, for decades now we've been so car reliant, I mean, that, that does create massive problems both in terms of mobility, but also in terms of health and, and, a, and a healthy healthy city, I would assume. It's completely unacceptable that a very small, like 80% of kids in the 1970s walk to school or cycle to school. Um, and now uh, less than um, uh, 20% walk or cycle to school. That's just a really bad start to life. That's a really bad start to life when the environmental pollutants around schoolyards are actually higher than in surrounding areas because of the number of cars that are idling and driving up to the school. That's really, really unacceptable. But in order to have walkable catchments for schools, it's a complex issue. We're going to need to have a different approach towards um, where schools are located, maybe a move away from super schools towards more local schools. Um, we're going to need a whole raft of traffic calming uh, measures. And yes, we're going to need, if we're going to have um, schools, and I mean, right now the ratios being used are stupid and insane. They're like 9,000 people per one primary uh, school, which is insane. Um, but if you were to have something a little bit more normal, like half, 4,500 people equals one primary school, you'd also want to have those 4,500 people living within um, certainly a kilometer at the outer limit. And we're just not building at those kinds of densities. And that's going to mean a huge issue in terms of a simple issue like, wouldn't you like your kids to be able to walk to school? Hmm. And we've seen overnight, of course, the Labor Party do a deal with the federal government where they're going to put this excise on petrol, but it's going to go into more roads, um, which mm -hmm. thwarts a deal that was going to have some of the money at least go to public transport. Yeah, isn't it irritating that we still have to struggle for a piece of the road pie instead of really retracking the way that we think about public transport, the way that we think about uh, water and energy, um, and, and all of it is not environmentally sustainable. And mm. the countries that are dealing with these issues seriously, like Denmark, uh, Norway, are absolutely thriving because they're exporting their new technologies to other countries that are trying to catch up. Um, meanwhile, Australia is there at the very tail end of recognition of climate change, and that not only has an impact on our environment, but it also has an impact on our economy and our society. And of course, um, they, they still refer to spending on public transport as a cost, but spending on roads as an investment. And as long as that thought continues, they'll keep doing it, I guess. I think so. I think that, again, one of the arguments that needs to happen is that affordable housing is essential infrastructure and essential investment. Um, and, and indeed, I could I could ramble on on that one too, Kevin, if you want. But um, uh, bottom line is that, you know, we live in a very different world from 50 years ago. We have different expectations of democracy. We have different understandings of our environmental impact. We have different kinds of households. Uh, we have a rapidly aging society. We have a society where people with disabilities are no longer locked up and their lives considered worthless. We need to have urban decisions that reflect all of that 
because I have conversations all the day, all, all the time, and I do try to talk to everybody. Um, you know, about um, wasn't it great when uh, women stayed at home and uh, you know took care of older people and as well as their children, and that's why society's gone to hell in a handbasket, kind of thing. And first of all, completely untrue, at least in two generations of my family, who are single mothers struggling hard to work and bring up their children. Secondly, so, you know, your, your assumption of the past is incorrect. Um, secondly, you know what? Take a deep breath. The world has changed. <laughs> um, and we need to uh, reflect that changing world and have cities where um, it's, it's a place where people can grow and thrive. I mean, uh, we started off this conversation talking about survival, and survival is awfully important. It allows you to grow and thrive. But the top of Maslow's hierarchy is actually what he calls self-actualization, which means thriving. And there's no reason why people shouldn't be thriving and happy and healthy um, other than some really bad political decision-making, which, again, shouldn't be just up to politicians, but is a collective problem. It seems to me that um, maybe I'm going too far back here, but the root of this housing problem is is about individualism versus, um, you know, living in a community. No, I think that's true. I think one of the things that came out when I was in uh, uh, Portland and um, Vancouver and Toronto for a few months is that in all three of those cities, um, public transport is beginning to be an us problem. It affects all of us. But affordable housing is slowly making a transition, but it's still a little bit of a them problem. And you see that in opposition to affordable housing. People go, oh, I don't want those people close to me. And it's like, hello, do you know what the um, uh, the fastest growing uh, um, demographic group of old people are? It's older single women. So what you're doing is you're talking about you don't want your mom in your neighborhood, you know, <laughs> you don't want. Um, uh, young people who are being thrown out of foster care at uh, 18 and whose life chances rely on them having a stable source of housing. You don't want people with disabilities who are locked out of um, the traditional employment sector, and so, of course, they're slightly lower income, to be living in your communities. I mean, look at yourself. Look at the judgments that you're making. Try to be a little bit more tolerant. Try to get some empathy. Mm. We mentioned last week, in, in terms of affordable housing, uh, the the former Glenroy College, the Indigenous school that was closed down two or three years ago. We had a picket line out there at the time. It didn't succeed again. Um, but the government now is talking about selling it off to developers uh, mm. with no thought of affordable or public housing, and public housing could go there very readily, I would have thought. Um, and similarly, you've got headlines where CBUS is now becoming one of the biggest developers in the country, but it's mm. building all these massive towers, uh, none of which is affordable, yet it's workers' money. I mean, surely in there somewhere there's some sort of solution. Yeah, and in North America and Europe, there's a bigger emphasis on social investment and on social missions. So um, one of the biggest banks in Vancouver is Van City Credit Union, and it's made its, um, uh, a lot of its growth has been dependent on taking risk on um, uh, affordable housing and becoming the go-to bank for affordable housing. So it would make sense in the long term, I think, and we're certainly doing some work with both philanthropic and private investors 
for them to recognize the growing interest in social investment and maybe a stable long-term return is better than the high returns that are currently coming out of both suburban sprawl and um, uh, and high-rise housing that's sold to um, uh, absent uh, investors. Um, so, you know, yeah, right now you can get a 20% return on that. That's fucking obscene. Um, pardon me for using bad language on the radio. Um, <laughs> Obscene's a bad can, word, yeah. <laughs> you, you can get um, uh, returns of, I mean, in other places, and again, you know, this has something to do with the taxation system, you can get returns of um, 6 to 8% on affordable housing, and, and, you know, for a lot of people who have retirement savings, that would be an absolutely acceptable government bond-type um, investment, and they'd be uh, adding to the um, social and environmental wealth of the nation instead of detracting from it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a a, a, um, a changed way of thinking that needs to occur. Um, in terms of the specific issue of schools, um, there are a lot of places in the world that have um, uh, worked out vertical villages slightly better than Melbourne has. Melbourne doesn't yet have a school with housing on top of it. It's entirely possible. I was in Portland where a private developer um, went to the school board and said, I notice there isn't a local school. Um, I've got to do some active frontage in my uh, um, uh, ground floor. Would you like to have your school here? And they were like, excellent. Mm. And uh, built some two and three bedroom um, affordable housing on top of it. And it's um, a tremendous addition to the community. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's completely wrong to be selling off this government land for private uh, development when you could um, uh, have a school in the bottom and housing on top. I mean, Fitzroy mm. High School was closed down for a few years. Fortunately, the land wasn't sold off. Now Fitzroy High School has a critical mass of students. Um, yeah. We're going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid. But thank yeah. you very much for appearing on the show. Um, no this is Carolyn Weitzman. Yeah. Carolyn, Carolyn, it's been three years, as I said, since I first thought of getting you on, but we'll certainly have you on within three years, I promise you that. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope it was worth the wait, Kevin. It, was, it certainly it was, was worth the wait. Thanks a lot. You're okay, listening thanks. to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am. And that was uh, Professor Carolyn Weitzman, Weitzman, who is the Professor of Urban Planning at Melbourne. And, um, we've got, we're going to have one more in this series of urban issues. We're going to talk to Pam Morgan, who set up some of these stuff in Q. In fact, the urban gardens, etc., and works on such issues here, and we'll talk to her about the greening of cities. That's one we'll have in the next few weeks at some stage. Yeah. Okay. Well, the time's nine fifty-seven. We're going to go out. Tell people it's transport next week. Will you, Corey? Next week we're going to have transport. (laughs) Thanks, John McPherson. (laughs) Jay. Yep. So we're going to go out with um, the Yeah Yeah Yes with their track Gold Line. Thanks for downloading a three CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.